0: Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy.
1: Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are finishing up our point number one in our teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, Important Prophecy Terms. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been looking at the first set of terms, of which there are seven sets of two terms each that uh, we're looking at in preparation for our overview of the 30 prophetic events that the Bible says will take place between now and eternity, which we find at the end of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And in point number one, we've been spending some time looking at how the term the Son of God and the Son of Man are used in the Scriptures. And to make it clear, the term Son of God and Son of Man, as we've pointed out in the Scriptures, this is the term that's applied to Christ. These terms are also applied to men in different places in the Bible, and that's why we're talking about the term that's capitalized to emphasize, to make the point clear that we're talking about the deity of Christ when the term the Son of God and the Son of Man are used. And we have been uh, spending some time here in point number one in the second part, uh, looking at the Son of Man, and we have uh, emphasized the point that we go back to John chapter 5, verses 21 to 23 principally, and you see that on your worksheet, which is available from the uh, website here at the radio station that when the term the Son of Man is used, referring to Christ, it is generally in reference to a context of judgment, a context of judgment. He is the the judge, according to John chapter 5. Also in John chapter 5, the term Son of God is found, and there the context Son of God, referring to Christ, is referring to when he is blessing when he is rewarding. So he is in, it is used in reference to believers. It's used in reference to the righteous, to the church. So that is why I think it's so important that we differentiate these two terms, son of God and son of man. Because if you do that, according to the scriptures, when you see these terms, you can immediately get a grasp of what the context is you obviously need to read the context, and by that I mean what what comes before, what comes after the scriptures that you're looking at. But if the scriptures include the term son of man, most of the time it's going to be dealing with judgment, and it's going to be dealing with unbelievers. Whereas son of God, you're dealing with rewards, and you're dealing with believers. So we're finishing up the point here on son of man, Uh, in point number one of our seven sets of terms, prophetic terms. And we were talking about in Luke 22, Mark 14, and Matthew 26 from your worksheets how the term Son of Man was used in talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, the the ruling council of elders, if you will, that were charging Jesus with these false crimes leading up to his uh, crucifixion. And then we transition when we started in Mark, looking at how the term son of man can also be used in a positive way when he's talking about forgiving of sins. But the key thing is he was talking in Mark chapter two to scribes. So he's talking to unbelievers. They do not see him as the son of God. They see him as a mere fleshly man, just like they are of human origin. In other words, um, It's um, just his mother and father. There was no uh, immaculate conception through the Holy Spirit. So they do not see him as the promised Messiah. And uh, we continue to look at that and looking at Matthew chapter 4, then Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. Those all dealing, or at least starting with Matthew chapter 5, um, had to do with the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking to Israel. And in, in context, this is before Jesus ever talked about the church, ever talked about um, the gospel of grace, if you will. This is all the gospel of the kingdom. He is telling Israel, I am the king that was promised to you in the Old Testament. I am here. I am preaching the good news of the kingdom. I'm telling you all about the kingdom in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount and how you can be blessed, and and what it means to be blessed by me uh, if you believe in me now as your king. I will have a period of tribulation where I will do judging, and then I will set up my kingdom right here, right now on the earth. And of course, they denied him. So therefore, uh, he started talking about at the end of Matthew chapter 7, we looked at um, Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23, and then Matthew chapter twenty one, talking about doing the will of God going forward. In fact, we talked about the the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six about how the prayer was that the kingdom of heaven would come to the earth, and that's what he was there to set up. That was there; he was there to inaugurate that. But of course, they did not um, believe him. So the second part of the Lord's Prayer, nine and ten, were praying for the kingdom to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then from um, eleven on, it's talking about praying that the Lord would guide them during the period in which uh, the Lord removes the promise of the kingdom. Following the rejection of Israel uh, of Christ by Israel, he he withdrew. He didn't do away with. He didn't throw away. He removed, he postponed the promise of the kingdom and told them, basically, here's how you need to live until I come again. So that's the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the, the positive side of the use of the term son of man, because he was talking to a country that had basically turned their backs on him uh, as being the son of God and m- looked at him merely as the son of man or the son of a man. So we want to finish up in today's program, and we'll see if we can do that today, Um, but we don't want to rush anything. We want to finish up looking at the Son of Man. We want to look at some of the passages that clearly depict him as the Son of Man coming to judge, but there are also passages that are oftentimes uh, taken out of context and therefore misapplied, misused. And actually, you'll find um, doctrines and, and religious beliefs that are built around these false understandings of these passages. And I'm speaking principally about what is called the Olivet Discourse. And by the way, the Olivet Discourse is one of our seven sets of terms that we're going to be looking at when we compare and contrast this Olivet Discourse that we find in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 with what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Both of these talks, if you will, uh, by Jesus to his apostles took place during the week that he was in Jerusalem preparing to be um, sacrificed uh, on the cross. Uh, The Olivet Discourse happened first, and then shortly after that, just a matter of a couple of days later, was the Upper Room Discourse, and they're dramatically different discourses talking about two totally separate periods of Israel's future. So that's why they're included here in these sets of prophetic terms, that we need to understand these because it's easy to read over them, think they're one and the same, and just move on, which unfortunately is what most people do. So we're going to spend some time looking at that, but very briefly we're going to look at it here in point number one as we look at the term son of man and see how it is applied here. Matthew 24, if you turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus talking to his handful of apostles that were with him in Jerusalem in the temple and in the city, and they have now come back up to the top of the Mount of Olives, which is just a, I don't know, it's a little over half a mile's walk from the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley and up the, uh, the western slope of the Mount of Olives to the top. And they sit down there, and they look over at the temple, and they talk to Jesus about how magnificent this site is. But they are referring back to things that Jesus had said about how this would all be torn down and would be raised up the third day. And, of course, he was prophetically, one, talking about his death, burial, and resurrection as the true church, and he was also prophesying what would happen approximately uh, not quite 40 years later in 70 AD when those walls would actually be thoroughly torn down with not one stone being left upon another. But they they ask him, uh, tell us, when will these things happen? Uh, this is verse 3, actually, of Matthew 24. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus actually answers The second part of this, uh, you go to Luke for the answer to the first part, when will the walls be torn down? Because Luke goes into detail. But here in Matthew 24, he answers, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he's basically talking about the tribulation period that is yet to come. Remember, Israel has turned their back on Jesus. He has postponed the promised kingdom from being set up right then in their lifetime, and has been postponed to some time in the future, and we know that is still yet future. So it's been 2,000 years, but I, I pray that it's coming quickly because we know that the rapture happens before the tribulation and the setting up of the kingdom. And, of course, the rapture uh, involves you and me, and uh, we are eagerly awaiting that. But he, he's answering them what's going what's gonna to happen in the tribulation and what's the second coming looking like. Going to look like. And he goes through and and tells them. He talks about the first part of the tribulation, the middle part of the tribulation, the last part of the tribulation, all in here in Matthew 24. And this, what's called the Olivet Discourse, that starts at the beginning of Matthew 24, goes all the way through Matthew 25. And the reason we know that is we go to the first verse of Matthew 26 and it says, when Jesus had finished all these words. So he takes what we see in our Bibles, and of course this was all added much later, excuse me, the chapters and the verses, but we see a discourse or a talk by Jesus to his apostles that takes uh, what we see here as two chapters. So he goes through and lays this all out, and then he goes uh, on and, and gives them eight Parables, eight parables, and the theme of all eight of those parables is to be ready to maintain your righteousness. Maintain your righteousness during the tribulation because those who persevere to the end of the tribulation will be saved. And he makes that point very clear in Matthew 24, verses um, 13 and 14. Verse 13 reads, but the one who endures to the end, and that's the end of the tribulation, he will be saved. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom. So there's another clue that we're talking about the tribulation. Jesus is now, uh, through the Holy Spirit, through the 144,000, through the two witnesses, through the angel in heaven, all of them sharing the gospel of the kingdom, the reoffer of the kingdom because the king is coming at his second coming. Uh, Again, verse 14, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come, and the end being the tribulation. So obviously we're talking about a period called the Great Tribulation. It is a period of judgment. There is really very little positive about the tribulation. There are souls that are saved Uh, And we'll live in eternity with uh, Jesus and his father um, in the new Jerusalem, but they will lose their lives by and large uh, because of that, because it's going to be a period of time that is going to be testing and torment uh, over the whole world for the seven-year period. So consequently, as you go through this, you would not expect to find the term, the Son of God what you would expect to find, and in fact, that is the, the, the truth, the fact, you find the term son of man all through here because it includes judgment. So let's look at just a few of these um, to get our understanding of the flow and the context of this in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, starting first of all in Matthew 24, verse 29. Verse 29 And it says uh, in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, so there is another clear reference to this period of seven years, which is, if you're interested, you can go back just a handful of verses, and it talks about a period of time that never has happened before and never will again. This is that terrible, terrible seven-year tribulation. Verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So there you see that term, Son of Man, twice, and you see right there in verse 30 the reaction of the people on the earth. They are all mourning because they know that Jesus is coming and he's coming to judge. It's just an instinctive feel that they have, uh, if not a factual um, Um, uh, understanding that once they see the sign of the Son of the Man, they know that judgment is coming. So it's very clear, uh, I pray that you can see here, that the Son of Man term is used in direct association with a judgment that's coming on the earth. And then we move down to um, verse 37, and I should point out, starting in verse 32 of Matthew 24, is when the author here, Matthew, starts sharing the eight parables that Jesus actually tells the apostles that are sitting with him there on the Mount of Olives uh, as part of the Olivet Discourse. So the parable of the fig tree is the first one, and it, uh, there are eight of them finishing up with the great white throne judgment. So as we move through these parables, we go down to verse 37 and read, Thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine. 37, 38, 39, it says, For the coming of the Son of Man, referring back up here to verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man and the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 37 reads, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will, be, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So that's a clear description of the judgment that takes place at the second coming of Christ. There are those that want us to believe that this has to do with the rapture, because it's talking about people being carried away. Well, it has nothing to do with the rapture. Remember, this is all talking to Israel, answering the question, what will happen at the end? Uh, And what will be the sign of your coming? So it's all to Israel about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And just as we found uh, with the days of Noah, remember Noah was a righteous man. Noah was preaching, uh, like Jesus preaching, like the 144,000 during the tribulation preaching. But people were not listening. They were going about their lives. Yes, it was a difficult time, but life went on, is what it's saying here. Life went on until the flood came. And that relates back to verse 30 where it says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes will mourn because they recognize that um, judgment is coming. Well, the judgment in the days of Noah was the flood. And the flood took all of the unbelievers away. Well, when Jesus comes at his second coming, He's going to deal with all the unbelievers, both the Gentiles and the Jews, and those that are uh, found to be unrighteous, to be uh, doers of evil, will be sent to, um, ultimately, to the great white throne judgment. So we see a very clear understanding of the Son of Man being a judge here. And in our next program, and we should be able to wrap this uh, point number one up in our next program, we'll look at the use of the Son of Man in the uh, rest of the Olivet Discourse, and then we'll move on to comparing the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. But as we always do on our uh, programs each day, we want to go to our Q&A, and we have been in a particular Q&A dealing with a question from Rich in Indian Springs uh, asking about the working of the Holy Spirit during this tribulation period that we've been talking about. Here in Matthew 24 and 25. As a matter of fact, we're going to go to Matthew 25. So if you would uh, stay where you were in Matthew 24, continue on in the Olivet Discourse, and go over to the first verse of Matthew 25. And we finished our program yesterday, our last program, talking about the uh, parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the ten virgins. And what we're looking to um, show here in the first these 13 verses of Matthew 25 is that the Holy Spirit during the tribulation, during the seven-year tribulation, will be functioning just as he did in the Old Testament. And you'll recall, if, you, if you've been with us for a while, we went back to several verses in the Old Testament, but um, more particularly if you're joining us perhaps for the first time, We went to Ezekiel chapter 33 in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, and we looked at verses 11 through 13, and it clearly points out that a righteous man will have the Holy Spirit, but if that righteous man during his lifetime turns to a lifestyle of iniquity and and evil doing and dies, he will die as an unbeliever. Even though he was righteous at one point, if he dies in sin, he will um, pay the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God. Contrarywise, if it's an evil person and during his lifetime he turns to a life of righteousness through faith and dies, he will be counted as righteous when uh, the Lord comes back and resurrects what we call the Old Testament saints. And the other verses we went through, like First Samuel 16, Psalm 51, 11, and so forth, showed us that the Holy Spirit would come on and then could leave people if they went from righteousness to unrighteousness. When the church came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, unlike the Old Testament, changed uh, in, its, in his manifestation and in his work he came in and indwelt the believer forever. And we went to John chapter 14 to make that point that the Holy Spirit would be with a believer forever, even if that believer uh, had a season of sin, if you will, and straight away from focusing on the Scripture, focusing on the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would bring that person back and that the fact that we had and we have an advocate in heaven which is jesus christ and first uh, john tells us that we can uh, ask for forgiveness of our sins and jesus will forgive us of our sins based on his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection so we see that the holy spirit functions today indwelling the person and will be with that person forever if indeed they are a true believer in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But when the church is taken away in the rapture and the seven-year tribulation begins, the Holy Spirit will go back to being, uh, as he functioned in the Old Testament, coming on people and leaving people. And we see that in Matthew, just very quickly go back a chapter to Matthew 24 and look at verses uh, verse thirteen. It says, "But the one who endures to the end." And here, in context, he's talking about the tribulation that is yet to come. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now we see that in other places about enduring to the end, but in those passages, they're referring to the church, and it says, "Endure to the end that you do not lose your rewards." that you do not lose your crowns. It has nothing to do with salvation. A Christian is saved once he accepts Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into his life. But that then changes again, as I've been saying, in the tribulation period. And in context, Matthew 24 and 25 are talking about the tribulation period. And recall, starting in verse 32, we have the eight parables that I mentioned before in the uh, teaching portion when we were talking about the Son of Man, that these eight parables all have the same theme, the same point that Jesus wants to get across. Be ready. I'm coming. Be ready. Maintain your righteousness to the end so that you can be saved when I come. And then we move to Matthew 25 and look at this particular parable of the 10 virgins. And I read this last time and I went through and um, um, started to make the points and I want to that's where I want to pick up here today is to make the point that every one of the points that are that are shared in Matthew 25 verses 1 through 13 are earthly um, points of fact that it has nothing to do with the church it has nothing to do with the rapture and there are people that want to say that this is a, Um, parable about the rapture of the church, because it talks about a certain number of the virgins being able to go into the bridegroom, which would be Jesus here in context. But I want to go through here and and look at some details, but the first thing I want to do before that is to share the, the scripture that has to do with the rapture, the scripture that has to do with the rapture so that we can compare point to point between these two because I think if you can grasp the fact that uh, the parable of the ten virgins has to do with the tribulation and not the rapture, you will have a piece of knowledge, scriptural knowledge, that a lot of people do not have because they listen to pastors who misconstrue this as being the rapture. So if you would, let's go to 1 Corinthians, and let's see if we can't get this um, covered. In today's uh, program, I said 1 Corinthians. Let's go to the the other one, which is um, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is also good. We want to read 1 Thessalonians um, uh, 4 13 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So we're going to take this passage and compare it to Matthew 25 in our next Program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring
0: Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for The Unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.